0: It's time we shift our perspective on business and life and see that our businesses are the means to us living life first. Reinventing the way we go about our days as entrepreneurs. The Zero Wasted Days podcast is designed for dream makers and action takers, and also those who value going slow and savoring the moments in between. This is the essence of living a Zero Wasted Days life. And welcome to the Zero Wasted Days podcast. I'm your host, Suzanne Actison, a former C-level executive turned seven-figure serial entrepreneur, transformational business coach, and I love helping women entrepreneurs merge strategy, feminine energetics, and embodiment to create outside-the-box business solutions to their challenges. In each episode of the podcast, I'm going to share how to redefine how you do business and learn how it can be the means to you living life first. I'm going to share interviews with inspiring people who can help you see how worthwhile it is to keep pursuing your dreams, share heartfelt stories. I know you're going to relate to and give you ideas and strategies to keep going after your biggest dreams. I hope you find value and inspiration here and that will keep you coming back each and every week i have some amazing guests lined up as well as some solo episodes planned so let's get into this week's episode hello and welcome back to zero wasted days I am and I say this every single time but it keeps on getting better I am super excited to welcome my longtime friend Jill Wheatley to the podcast and I'm going to tell you a little bit more about her and before I even let her speak I want to tell you you know a little bit about how and why I know Jill but our, Friendship goes back to university where we spent four years together, initially roommates on the same floor in residence and then became roommates in our first home and the time that I got to spend with Jill was just some of the best years of my life and before we both flew off and... Started traveling all around the world. And what brings us back today are very different circumstances. And I'm not just having a chin wag, as they would say in Australia, with a with an old friend. But Jill has experienced some extraordinary things in her life over the last 10 years. And I am just honored to have you here. And I will let you do a bit more of an intro, Jill. Jill, you, you will hear through her story has to live a zero-wasted day's life. It has learned in a very traumatic way when you stare death in the face that you have this one life to live and there's going to be so much that you're going to take from this conversation. I We will try to get through it without tears and too much emotion, but welcome Jill. I'm so excited to have you here.
1: I have goosebumps just listening to you. <laughs> Much for having me. It does seem absolutely surreal and definitely a totally different life those days back at Laurier to where I find myself now. But happy yeah, to I share d- the in between.
0: I don't think neither of us would have said, Oh, in 20, oh, is it how many years was it? 25, 20? I don't even know. I can't remember. In the 90s. So what is that? It's almost coming up. Is that's not 30 years. Come on. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> yes, that's almost 30 years. We never would have been able to predict that we were going to be sitting here and me. Podcasts weren't even a thing back then. So we were still going in and doing our emails in the internet room or something like that at the (laughs) university. So to actually sit here and interview you, it also just makes it more profound for me with this podcast, because like I said earlier, before we hit record, first and foremost, as a very selfish undertaking with this podcast, to have interviews with extraordinary women and women that I haven't met before, or it's the first time that we're connecting and also just reconnecting with long, long lost friends. And I will say that Jill is coming in with a very good internet connection from Kathmandu in Nepal. And I am going to let Jill tell you a little bit more about her story, but she has a quote. And I like to use quotes from websites because it's people pick certain quotes on websites that obviously mean a lot. And you said a story is only interesting because what of what one has to overcome and work through. And so too is life. I'd love you to tell us a bit, a, a Coles-Notes version of your story and what you've had to overcome and how it's actually helped you gain vision in your life.
1: Thanks so much, Susie. Yeah, I remember that a book was given to me, my brother, when I first came out of hospital and I it just stuck with me and never imagined that my story would in fact become this interesting. Because in those days, I thought there was just so much darkness, I couldn't imagine life actually continuing to be worth living. So let me back up a little bit. After our time together in college, I went off and taught overseas. I was working as a health and sports science teacher. I started in Singapore, and then Russia, and then Switzerland, and then my second year in Germany. On a morning that I started just like any other September morning. I was out on the field with a group of 10th grade students and in in a split second or more appropriately, maybe the blink of an eye, my life completely changed. I was hit on the right side of my head with a hard ball. And from the moment of impact, my right eye closed and it blew up, in fact, the size of a baseball, very purple, blue, black. And I knew that there was something extremely wrong tried to try extremely hard to let the students know that I needed help and to to work to stay conscious because I couldn't go get the help that we needed. next thing I'm in a hospital and told I had a black eye and the friends that were with me my colleagues were actually permitted to take me home to the farmhouse where I lived so, if you can imagine Bavaria, uh, very picturesque. I lived on top of a barn and I had my Subaru with my two bikes on the roof, my skis in the back. And every weekend was just choosing one of those options, whether it be skiing or running or a mountain biking, snowshoeing. But when they brought me home, I lived by myself. So it was a day and a half later When my friend came, he was coming actually from the UK. He was going to drive me to the World Duathlon Championship. So that summer had been pretty intense training, competing in long-distance duathlons. So mostly mountain running and long-distance cycling. And he, instead of bringing me to the race that was supposed to be in Zofingen in Switzerland, he brought me back to that same hospital. So from the time that my friends had brought me home to the time that Chris arrived, I had just been in and out of consciousness, but also it was such like a small flat. I just had one of those bar fridges, like a a very small hotel fridge. And I didn't have proper ice. I just had like frozen berries for my smoothies, but that's what I used to put ice on my head or as close as I could get and and ended up like just mush and and tried to use that because I couldn't get to a toilet because I was vomiting. So that's the state he found me in, brought me back to that hospital where the next four months are pretty much in and out of memory for me. I was put in an ambulance and rushed to a neurotrauma hospital where that black eye has, in fact, never reopened. Basically, it's like I'm paralyzed in the right eye and that I have limited movement in my left. So I can see it at the bottom of the left hand side of my left eye. So... More than just a black eye, my brain was in fact bleeding and swelling, and my skull had been cracked, broken, shattered, not completely shattered, broken in various places because of the impact of the ball. So a bit of a misdiagnosis and extreme, every brain injury is unique and the impact. So not only my vision, but the the area responsible for appetite was affected. So not only was I The trauma, the nauseousness from the actual impact and right after the accident, but the area that is responsible for appetite was affected. So I really struggled to eat and build my relationship with food, which just is just one of the many factors, the area of my brain responsible for memory and cognition, just so many different areas affected. So...
0: For many. Yeah, That we take for granted, right? We take so many things for granted. I remember when you were in hospital and people were writing for you, but then when you would occasionally say, I mustered up the, the energy to like just to read and write or look at the computer or wh- whatever it is, like that just
1: took so much, so much, so much from you. There's often talk about a cycle of acceptance and I definitely, won. I don't think it's a cycle because <laughs> there's so much movement like back and forth. With the misdiagnosis and then just the false promises. So the doctors initially thought that, or more than just doctors, my medical team thought that when the blood would actually clear from like, once the brain stopped bleeding, mm-hmm. that once it would all clear, like things would open up and my eye would actually work again. Their focus was not on the eye itself, but on the brain. And so I had these goalposts where they would say maybe probably two weeks
0: mm-hmm. and then two
1: more weeks. And with every push of the post, my hope just deteriorated more and more. Like I just got, life got so, so dark. And then at the six month mark, still in hospital, but I was transferred to a neuro, like a specialized neuro ophthalmologist Mm -hmm. in another part of Germany. And that's where every eye brain test that you could possibly imagine was undertaken. And it was confirmed that I would not get my vision back. And, the doctor was extremely nice, which was helpful. Empathetic, empathy is huge, and one of the most valuable lessons I've learned from my traumatic brain injury, for sure. But she, I think, for me, there was at that point, at least, there were no more. There was no more hope. Like I wasn't going to get the vision back, so there was some relief. But then there was also questions because I'm in a foreign country. German is not my first language, even though I trust the doctor and I trust like her expertise and her English was very good. There's just always a doubt. I get that. And so, I did, have more, I I did have, another language. Are hard. Yeah. So, those just so many different emotions because, um, okay, now the. No, no more driving and living an independent single woman living in the middle of the Bavarian Alps, choosing to live there because I could go skiing every weekend and every holiday and working in an international school. Holidays are generous and you can, that's why I chose to do what I was doing. I could ski, I could run, I could bike, snowshoe, just take my little car and go wherever I wanted. But now suddenly that loss of autonomy hit harder than that ball itself. Totally. Totally dependent on somebody else to take me around. And so, so yeah, life got really dark and the medication that I was on, I just couldn't see it helping. I couldn't see any benefit. I just didn't think that life was really worth living anymore. And the tubes that were literally keeping me alive, feeding me the medicine, I didn't want them because I just thought it's really not, life's not going to be the same that it was before. And so I didn't want it. I didn't think I didn't have a sense of (laughs) impermanence. Yes. At the time, of course we know everything's always changing, but really totally denying the fact that it could change for the better or anything that anything good could possibly come out of my traumatic brain injury at the time. I would say my perspective was such that it was just focused on the losses, like the 30% of vision that I had, I couldn't see any good in that. It was just like the 70% loss or the loss of the body because I had been super fit competing at this elite level. And then suddenly like I'm being just fed all of this medicine that, and I'm lying in a bed, I can't move. And moving has always been my outlet, like my physical, whether it be running or any type of fitness is my outlet for, for my mental health. And I couldn't, that and I had no control just that perspective like on the losses and loss of control like somebody else has got to do this for me and I can't go to the toilet by myself and I'm being told what drugs I have to take and I'm being told by the insurance company which hospital I need to be in and which language I have to be served in so things got extremely dark and they told me that if they unplugged everything that I was hooked up to that I would be dead in three days and for me I'm like that's three days too many. Like I just want this over with. So here I sit (laughs) talking to you with so much gratitude for the lessons that have come from my TBI and that one being the power of perspective and how that can change, but also just learning to embrace impermanence. And though nothing stays the same for, you know, it's not always, it's not always going to just keep getting better, but there's going to be the mountain analogy, Mm -hmm. but just totally that, like right now I've been having some tough days, but I know that they're not going to last. And I think about the impermanence where I came from, yeah but also just like other lessons with respect to authenticity, like talking openly about this, because I'm not sure that everybody... Feels comfortable talking about the dark times, but I think it's important that we be vulnerable and we do.
0: Yeah, a hundred percent. And we talk so much about that in in my world of business coaching and that true authenticity. And the, when we stop thinking about how this is impacting other people and being judged, and you actually just from your heart center the opportunities. And we talked before that before we were recording about. About your future and opportunities come when we actually just focus on ourselves and operate authentically and from within. And so, if we fast forward, so this has been how many years and then getting walking out of a hospital now in Colorado?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, 26 months. So, the accident happened in September 2014, and I got out December 2016 after seven different hospitals, rehabilitation centers. Back to Canada. Germany briefly in Canada, but because of my complex situation, I'm not, I gave up my Canadian residency. So I'm not entitled to Canadian healthcare. They didn't trust my insurance. My brother worked so, so hard. And the German hospital called and said, she might not make it. He got on the next plane, flew over and brought me to a hospital in Canada. But as soon as we got there, they said, she's too far gone. We cannot, we don't have the facilities to help her. So I was then taken to hospital in Colorado where I spent the last seven months and they really saved my life. I only knew of Colorado before from, it was where people went for skiing, but I had never been, I had no connections. And so I just showed up there. I vaguely remember being in an ambulance And then just seven really tough months. But I just, I remember a couple of doctors specifically and talking about empathy who really understood the complexity of my injuries and the care that I needed. So I got out of hospital but like a huge relief in many ways, but at the same time, I didn't want to admit it at the time, but I felt so lost. Like oh. I couldn't live in Germany anymore because my residency was dependent on my work permit. They wouldn't let me work any, I couldn't work anymore. So that was taken away. So my apartment had been given up. My oh. friend from Switzerland went and took everything out of it. Things sold. My car had been sold. I just had relief to get out of the hospital and relief from because for many of those months I had one to one like a nurse's assistant one meter could not be more than one meter away from me. I couldn't do anything alone. I couldn't go to the toilet by myself. Shower only like when I was permitted or good behavior or strong enough, blah blah blah. So you know there was a breath of fresh air I can get out of hospital. But now what? Like I have nowhere to go. Like I'm a single woman And I have no home. I have no driver's license. I'm not a resident in Canada. I'm not a resident in Germany. So lost. And I have 30% eyesight. Like I'm walking out of hospital a totally different person than when I went in as a fit, independent, autonomous athlete. And so the only sign that I could see after some, like a lot, actually a lot of trying to work out bureaucracy with insurance and Banking, it was awful. I had to go and prove that I was still alive. I had to literally fly to Germany to my bank because they didn't believe, because there had just been so much confusion and I had no access to my accounts. Anyway, um, the only sign that I could truly see was to mountains. And I thought if I just travel for one year in mountains away from society, because I look different than society tells us we should. It's terrible. And I know it's not true, but Mm -hmm. especially at that time. So it's basically like I'm paralyzed on the right side. So my eyes completely closed. I have no control over it. Mm -hmm. That's not what society tells us is normal. And I didn't want those stares. I didn't want to be around people. I didn't want to talk about the way my life had changed or still at that point, there was still so much anger, probably even denial still. But I would travel in mountains for one year, 13 different massifs. And I do this like a circle around the globe, avoiding winter because I never thought I could actually navigate in snow again because our eyes work together to create depth. Yeah. And I don't have depth perception because my vision only comes from the bottom of my left eye. So I didn't think that I would actually be able to walk or find my way in snow again. And it's ironic you were trying to avoid the
0: snow. One, you had come from competitive skier, living in cold places where you are also now. (laughs) It's kind of interesting. You've had a period where
1: you actually tried to avoid it. Um, Yeah. yeah. So that one year is now into year five and I'm here in Nepal just having finished my 7th, 8,000 meter peak.
0: (laughs) Okay. So I'm going to fill in the blanks there. So you (laughs) running and people can go and read your blog, which is very extensive with I remember actually in 2017 moving to France and doing a little bit of catch up. I'm like, where in the world is Jill? Because if sometimes you do lose track of people and you're not quite sure. And I'd read your blog and she was here, there, the other, and I was like, shit, she was actually in the Pyrenees in Andorra or wherever, yet not that long ago. So where I live is on the kind of the foothills of the Pyrenees. And anyway, so you spent some time. Tra- trail running and again people are going to just have their minds blown because you've got 30 percent vision and you're trail running around these mountains and not always stable footing you're breaking your arm <laughs> and you're falling and you're doing this and you're doing that Un- unbelievably not to mention trying to heal and recover we say traumatic brain injury but then at a at a at a trauma level like i i have do a big part of my own coaching yes i do business strategy but i but unless people actually actually are aware of the actual childhood traumas, right up to like other traumas that they suffered through their lives, then it's very difficult to heal and to overcome that. So you spend the next few years continuing to run and trail run. And about a year ago to 18 months ago, you've ended up in Nepal and started on a new mission, which was to try to climb all of the Eight thousand meter mountains in the world, which are the tallest, including yeah. So
1: a little bit actually. That first year, I, so I continued. I came through Nepal in that first year of yeah. what I thought would just be a year. It came year. through Nepal, fell in love with the Himalayas, knew I would come back. Yeah. And so I did come back after that. After that first year, and actually I've been here most of the last four years. Yeah. But really, that second time here started to go a little bit higher. Got intrigued with the altitude that running, not so much running when you're over 5,000 meters. (laughs) It's hard. (laughs) The oxygen is thin. My trail connected with some climbers up where I was running and just intrigued, especially when I saw the most beautiful mountain in, I believe, that I've ever seen. And that is called Amadablam in the sort of in the shadows of Everest. So probably about two years of just starting to go a little bit higher started. I did my first 6,000 meter peak and then three days later did another 6,000 meter peak because I just thought it was pretty cool. Uh, and do? I just felt like <laughs> this is where I'm supposed to be. And so then, yeah, the lockdown happened and I spent it mostly here and, or I did spend it here in Kemendu. But working on some technical skills, because I haven't grown up as a climber at all, no climbing, but yeah, taking that, that the fitness from the trail running and learning some skills and then embarking upon my first 8,000er. And as soon as I did my first 8,000er, I knew that it just seemed like the way I see it is that my traumatic brain injury set me up. Like it set the bar so high with respect to what I can tolerate and what I've been through that climbing that manaslu the for my first 8000er was like wow this is like a little bit easy so yeah. let me, i think i'll try all 14 and so <laughs> yes, you do. Uh, and so then i did six in a row and it's gone extremely well it's definitely challenged me in some ways but again when things get difficult i just think of the fact that i'm choosing to do this i have I've made a choice for this project. And when things get difficult, if it's if I'm not feeling well, if if there's a windstorm, if it's minus 40, oh. it's my choice. Oh. I didn't have a choice. I didn't have a choice with respect to my brain injury and my vision loss. Yeah. So now I go back to what I learned from that and take those lessons and apply them when things get difficult in a situation where I've chosen to be in.
0: Yeah. And so you I, You said just a minute ago that you're on these mountains and you don't have a lot of climbing skills. So the technical stuff, when you look at your photos now on on Instagram stories and the gear that you have to lug around, you would have had times on the mountain when you potentially suffered from imposter syndrome, which a lot of women in my world and just female entrepreneurs suffer from when they tell themselves they don't have the skills or I need to go out and get another certification. When really, when we actually dig beneath the surface of that, it often has to do with our own self-worth and fear of being seen actually has to do with really showing up in our business or in their world.
1: Have you suffered from imposter syndrome anywhere on the mountains? I can tell you that I had a big episode of it this morning and I still need to follow up with a friend because if my friend has been trying to, she's let's go, you're back in Kathmandu, let's go running. And I'm like, she's like super fit and going to go in a race this next week. And I'm just not, I'm not fast enough. I'm not strong enough when inside, I know that all she wants to do is spend time with me running yeah. and chatting on, the grill. but beyond that, I have really worked to overcome this shame. And I'm guessing many of your listeners can connect with Brene Brown and the shame of, and that intensely painful feeling or that belief that I'm so flawed. Like I've Mm. got this, like I I can't see properly. I've Mm. got this disorder and I've been through this trauma and I'm really struggling. And I just have so many flaws that I just, I'm not worthy of other people's time. I don't belong here. So yeah, even sometimes like you said, like coming into the mountains, like my very first 8,000 or I just remember going into the base camp tent and thinking, oh my gosh, there's nine other people and they've been climbing their whole life and they have all of this experience. And all I've been doing is training in the hills of Kathmandu and these little 6,000 meter peaks. And I have no vision, but yeah, I think I've come a long way still. Like I have these moments where I'm so flawed. I have so like, I'm less valuable as a human or why would anybody want to be with me and so, what do you do to help
0: to work your way I know you have different tools and techniques and rituals and what do you do to tell yourself that you are in the right place and to help work on that shame
1: I do I know deep down even in my darkest ones I know like we are we're humans and Um, it doesn't matter what I look like it should not make it should Make no difference, but I I try to set myself up every day for in the right mindset and definitely a flexible mindset. Whereas once mm. it might have been a lot more fixed, fixated on mm. the negative. But now, like starting every morning, my when I'm based somewhere, like right now I'm based in Kathmandu this week for just setting myself up. And the first thing I do, well, before I go to bed, I have my yoga mat which is right here, and I go from my bed to the yoga mat and I stretch, mm. turn on the kettle, and then I do a meditation. And then I journal all before, before any connection, no yeah. Wi-Fi, no phone, nothing. And so just setting myself up that way, journaling has become my, my most resourceful tool. I don't know if that's um, the right word, yeah. but my go-to since, since this little pad of sticky notes was beside my bed in Murnau hospital, when my friends would write notes, you know, just about and Jill's headache was an eight today. She saw this doctor tomorrow. She's got this therapy, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And then slowly when I became strong enough or had worked enough in occupational therapy where I actually could start to write again, I took over those st- sticky notes in, into my daily journal, which is really, it is therapeutic for me. Yeah. And it's not just, it's not practical. There's no, I guess there's some consistency in it, but it's a little bit about how I'm feeling and then trying to de- Determine like there's a lot of uh, mind maps yeah just like trying to sort out where are these feelings coming from or okay i'm really like i'm in a dark place like right now like what triggered this and how to work through those triggers and okay this is not improving what do i need to do so those are all powerful
0: techniques all of us can use and we and Uh, we do mindset part is sometimes more than half of whether or not someone's actually going to you might have the map to go up to Everest or to whatever mountain you're climbing next, but if you don't have the right mindset and energetically be able to show up for that, then there, no map is going to ha-
1: is going to help you. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so journaling would be my biggest tool, but also I just know if I'm I need my movement, my exercise mm. to mind clearing or sorting out the world's problems, Yeah, <laughs> just a little bit of movement in. And if I've already done it for the day, like even I think just connecting with nature and here in Kathmandu, you have to work for that, but even just go, just going for a walk. Those are my top tools and therapy. Like I do have an online therapist. It's not always easy to connect, but I think it's really important that people like talk yeah. openly about it. And put. A lot, I think a lot of people are scared or see shame in that, but finding a person and if it's not therapy, like someone that I can actually trust and, and talk to vulnerably, yeah. because I certainly know that secrets can keep us sick. And oh. if we don't talk about our struggles, that they're probably not going to go away. So I think it's really
0: important. And that's what for me, Like, and I'm not a therapist. I am a certified life coach, obviously lots of business experience, but a mentor or a coach like me and not everybody is capable of doing this, but some days it's that phone call of just wanting to have a chat and vent with somebody and share vulnerably. And sometimes for me, it's not about, and the more that my, my coaching practice deepens, the more that... My ability to hold just hold space for women just to talk through those things and not just provide solutions, right? As a business coach, as the business side is okay, like what ideas are you coming up with? What strategies? What's let's before we started recording, I'm like, chill. let's you know, you could do this, that, the other. I'm, I'm very solution oriented and I and that that's a massive asset. But the more my practice deepens, the more I also have this space holding capability to be able to just listen. And that is so, so needed with women, at whatever they're doing, entrepreneurship or climbing
1: mountains. I totally agree. I just even just a human connection. Like I realized like a a few dark days this week, I'm like, wait a second, who did you actually see today? Or who did you spend time with? Because it's easy to get caught in our own thoughts or just like we mentioned like that imposter. Yeah. But human connect is so very important. And I just feel that I feel so thankful for the internet because it's not always easy when I'm in the mountains or like I can go a long time without having an, not necessarily an intimate, but a what I call like a real conversation, not yeah. just talking about like how much snow came last night, or where we're going to, the wet, exactly. Yeah. So.
0: And when you do, when yeah. also, when you're moving around and like, you have, like we talked about where is home. I have, I say, I actually have and I find it more comfortable for my in my own vernacular to say I have three homes. I have somewhere that holds a space in my soul in Australia, in Canada, in France. And just being able to know that is is really important for the mental health, but also just all aspects of seeing the future and seeing forward. And I'd love to know, like this podcast, obviously zero wasted days. And what I'm passionate about is helping women get to where they want to get to. Like we all have big dreams. How do you start actually dreaming when you've been thrown such a curveball, mind the pun, and such a low place? So even now, like you've climbed to this point,
1: how do you keep dreaming bigger? What I did a couple of years ago, maybe it was during lockdown when I was a lot of time alone and just really connecting with my values and thinking about like previous work in schools. Every school has a mission statement, a vision statement. And I did that for myself. Like really the decisions that I make, every decision that I make, if I come back to my values, is it aligned? And then I wrote out a mission statement and I've shared that the mission, that's where it's at. But then the vision, like, where do I want to go with this? And everything's coming back, the values health and empathy and connection, communication, authenticity, vulnerability, and humor. These are my things and my go-tos. I think when I realized, and maybe it was part of lockdown, that I can help other people, that shift in perspective came when I connected my situation with my traumatic brain injury and the darkness, like that hole, that crevasse that I was in for so long, like not being able to see literally and figuratively any light. Like, I just thought that life was not worth living. You, your family, your friends, your coworkers probably not able to relate to traumatic brain injury, vision loss, eating disorder. But every single human that we can connect to on the internet is going through this shitstorm together. Mm -hmm. If I start to share a little bit of my story, how I went from this dark place where I felt like I had no control to where I am now, then maybe. You know, one person <laughs> hears something about my story and they realize, you know what? This isn't going to last forever. Or, and, or I get to choose my response. Okay, it yes, lockdown is awful. COVID is terrible. We're losing people. We're losing friends. And if I can share like how my story can correlate to that darkness, yeah. but then actually getting better and recognizing that I do have a choice how I respond. Yeah. Like I didn't get to choose to spend 26 I almost said years, but it felt like years, months in hospital. But now, like it's up to me to choose what i do with it. Like I could they wanted me to leave hospital with a white cane and not walk in the street by myself. I've chosen what to do with that. And so I think that's realizing that it's my choice. Like really, choosing what to do with my vision loss and knowing that hearing reading, media, like stigma associated with brain injuries, it started to jump out at me and realizing that the only way stigma is going to break down is if I talk about it, the stigma associated with vision loss. Are you imagining a person, a female climbing mountains when you think of 70% vision loss or a traumatic brain injury that somebody can't think for themselves anymore. There were just, I think, many triggers that I think led me (laughs) to see how I can actually help people by starting to share my story. And through these, what now I've chosen as, well, my climbing project, but also just mountain experiences in general, and have helped me to move to a place of acceptance of my vision loss and just really help from what I'm doing. I hope that I can shine light on the power of perspective and what is possible despite yeah. what some call a disability
0: yeah and you say it was COVID that kind of there's so many analogies here but that COVID that shined light on this and where you could see that this like you called it a shitstorm storm was happening and that you could help shine for people but even beyond that so like we're largely out of like the main for now main COVID but yeah. everybody in their lives have little mini shitstorms all the time. time. And so your message, whether it pertains to vision or traumatic brain injuries or just life and impermanence, there's so many applications to your story and how we can apply that to ourselves and to our lives. And that's why I wanted to have you on here because yes, you're not necessarily an entrepreneur at the moment, even though you probably technically are. There's so much application of what you're doing to all of our lives on, on a daily basis.
1: Yeah. And I think that's two things there. The COVID, I think because some schools and people started to reach out just with respect Mm -hmm. to, they had heard my story. And then when I started to realize that, oh, maybe this is a way that I could help people. And even if it wasn't COVID, like you said, like relationships, family, jobs, Mm -hmm. it has their own challenges. And by sharing my story, I hope that I can provide a little bit of light. And I love the the
0: fact that you brought it back and we didn't even talk about this. And I haven't even heard this across any of your work until you just said it. But I talk and talk a lot about those foundational elements in our life and business of living and working in our values. And I'm glad to see that one of mine is spirit of adventure. One of the mine is humor. So there's, there's no question about why we gel together with courage and joy. I'm looking at mine on my wall, compassion and optimism. I should know those at the top of my head, but I have them written in front of me. And it is such a foundational part of entrepreneurship, because even when there is that shitstorm, when there any time coming back to that, the mission, you know, why you're doing what you're doing and your values. Sometimes people think, oh, you need to do that at the beginning of a business. But no, you do that. A hundred times in a a year, you come back to that on on a daily basis. I come back to my mission, like, what am I doing? Okay, this is what I'm doing and this is what's driving me forward. So I love that. Regardless of business, you living in your values is is so important to to help you be able to, because that's the first step, right? That's come back to your values, then plant that new seed, then plant that new waypoint on where you're going and figure out the way how to get there. Okay, I'm going to have one final question, and it should be an interesting one. And it's usually more of a fun one, but it's about one of my values which is spirit of adventure and understanding what adventure actually means to you now asking you this question (laughs) (laughs) who is planning you still have everest to do and you've done and i'll just make this point also that everest like you said is the tallest of the eight thousands but not the hardest and you've done some of the hardest already but what does adventure mean to joe wheatley and what where has your favorite place been to visit ever and where do you still have to go?
1: What does adventure mean to me? It means, I guess, pushing myself in elements maybe that I don't have too much control over. I'm just imagining, I I'm, like in my mind, as I'm saying this, I'm just imagining me like climbing Annapurna. That's an adventure. Annapurna's is the 10th Highest Mountain, but it's notorious for extreme weather. And I just love being in conditions that that challenge me. And mm-hmm. I mean nature the adventures always I, I can't say always. Oh I was always in nature. But then I think, oh, if anybody saw the way I got to the trailhead today, they would think that's an adventure. Yeah. Taking a motorbike in do to some would be an adventure. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. But it probably gives you, I know for me, when I think of venture, like sometimes even for us, like going on a family adventure for the weekend, there's this Mm -hmm. visceral feeling that I get in my gut. I get this visceral response and excitement and endorphins. And so for me, those come out for you. It's climbing Annapurna. Everybody's version is different, but I know that for me, I get a visceral response when we are rounding up the and and my kids do it as well. I know it. There's a vibe in the house, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Which is so interesting, which is so yeah. interesting because it, it's just, we're all so different. Um, totally. and what adventure is to me. What was the second part?
0: I just you know what's place? your favorite place you've ever visited and, or even go back to, I think I might know one of the, one, one of your favorite places
1: and where you would still love to go to. I really enjoy the Canadian Rockies. <laughs> the Karakoram in Pakistan is just incredible. I think I what I really like about the Karakoram is that it's not accessible. To get to K2 base camp for the average person, they would take I guess closer to 10 days to get there just to I get to. Base watching camp. you getting there. <laughs> and we're in Nepal in the Himalayas which is home now like if there was an emergency there's you're going to get a helicopter but in Pakistan you're not. So that remoteness I really I prefer when I'm climbing that we have no internet reception no 3G, 4G, 5G which unfortunately in the last year like it's just becoming more accessible which I don't like my part of the adventure is not having any connection.
0: I don't like that because on your last mountain I was like where the hell is she gone? She's gone offline for five, five, <laughs> six days. I'm like searching yeah. the internet.
1: i'm learning that like last year during the autumn season i had finished my climbing but other friends were on another mountain and i was put in that situation and i didn't like it one bit so i do respect that where you can't hear from those that you love it's it can be a bit hard on the heart (laughs) yeah but the last winter i spent time in canmore alberta and i i've really develop like talking about skills like I've really been working on my skills to to build that confidence and to let go of that imposter syndrome and really focused on my on my ice climbing and lead climbing which was just incredible over the winter I really do I do like it there but again Mm -hmm. because you can't drive if you're in Canada it's really hard to get places when you don't drive yeah just aside but I, I do really like there but I'm curious to know which place you think that you I was going
0: to of- I was going to say maybe at the lake in Thunder Bay.
1: I do you know what I went back to the lake for the first time this past autumn actually where I was when I couldn't get a hold of my friends in the Himalayas and I spent some time there alone with my mom and that was I hadn't been there in a few years in fact before my father passed away and it is it's pretty the quietness and the serenity at the lake it is definitely just, it just lights my smile thinking about it. So yeah, yeah,
0: that's so good. And also just that home of going home to Canada is no matter where we are in the world, there is always a place for, and that kind of, as soon as I fly in and welcome to Toronto or wherever you might be, and you come through the airport and uh, yeah, it just feels, it feels like home. (sighs) (sighs) Yeah. A big sigh, a big sigh. Yeah. All right, look, I absolutely have loved hearing personally more not just your journey because I feel like I've followed quite closely, but just to hear in your own words and the experiences and the vulnerabilities and the the true journey that it actually has been and it's not over, right? It's you have more mountains to climb and more more peaks to summit um where you probably, you know, even though it's some of the farthest places that people will travel and climb to, you probably feel most connected to both yourself and loved ones when you're up there. My wall right here is a is actually, I've had a lot of mountain analogies in my last 20 years. I'll take a picture of it and put it on the website or on social media. There's a mountain and it's actually a picture that Spencer drew of me and it says Spencer and Mum, And... I think we all strive to be at the top of our mountain. And sometimes I worked with a life coach about 20 years ago, and she said, Suzanne, you're just at the bottom of your mountain right now. And you just need to, we want to see to work on you to get yourself up to the top of your mountain. So when he gave me that picture, and it was just shortly thereafter of us at the top, it was very, <laughs> it was just very poignant. I think we're all working to try to get to the tops of our mountains in whatever shape or form they might be. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of the Zero Wasted Days podcast. I truly hope you found it to be valuable and inspirational as you work to create a life by your own design. I would love you to rate and review this episode to let everyone else know about it and help me share this important message with the world. All you need to do is screen grab your review, share it on socials and tag me in to win a $100 Airbnb voucher that I'll be giving away every single month.